Download a podcast from Relay FM recorded Thursday, July the 20th, 2017. This is episode 13, Garbage In, Refined Garbage Out. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host, and this week I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Jessica Dennis is a podcaster and developer. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And Jason Cross, freelance tech writer and my former colleague at IDG. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jason. How are you? <laughs> Hello. Greetings to Jason's. Okay, we're in the Jason zone today. Uh, and Jessica, too. It's all J names all the way down, except for Stephen Hackett, my producer. Hi, Stephen. I'm just uh, alone here in, in S-land. Yeah. Just me. It's okay. I live in S-land, too, so it's all just fine. All right, let's get to it. The most interesting stories of the week is chosen by both Stephen and myself. We decide what's important on this <laughs> podcast, anyway. Uh, which brings us to topic number one. Google, this week, announced something that they're calling a new feed experience in the Google app. Basically, um, you can there'll be follow buttons, and you can follow trends and topics, and then it customizes the app based on that. Um, and, of course, also based on everything else Google knows about you from watching your behavior using all of its services. But anyway, um, TechCrunch reports that the Google homepage, the venerable, fairly blank Google homepage, will probably be getting some version of this kind of revamp in the near future. You know, Google plays a big role in many of our lives on the web. You can try to avoid Google if you want to, but uh, um, it's hard and I don't. I, I have given in. Um, uh, we've seen, you know, Google Reader tried to do news reading and it didn't really cross over to the masses and they've tried to do, you know, find other ways to do curation. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, what your, your, your take is on, uh, like this, uh, another attempt by Google to sort of like become your information source. It's, especially if it ends up on the Google homepage, it's really interesting. Jason Cross, yes. what do you think about it? <laughs> I, well, you know, reading over it and looking over the changes, I, it's not that big. A change really it's this is pretty minor upgrades uh it's they they already customize the feed you can already pick i don't want to see this news source i don't want this topic you know you've been able to do that it's it sounds like what they're promoting is we've used our machine learning technology to make it smarter about picking stories you'll like better and stuff like that which is good they should do that uh you know it's supposedly kind of out now if you go check it out if you on ios if you have the google app you get the feed and on android it's just to the side of your screen or in the Google app. Uh, and it doesn't look terribly different to me, but I wasn't a huge user of the feed to begin with. Uh, the interesting thing to me is that they're going to make this sort of their their homepage. They're yeah. probably the new tab page in Chrome. Instead of mm. showing pages you go to often would show a list like this. Uh, and I think people will probably want that because there's not a lot of value <laughs> in the new tab page they have now. Or you can no. just, I'm sure you can leave it blank, you know. <laughs> no, leave it blank. No, I can't approve changes to the Google homepage. I just can't. It's been a text box, a single text box for so long. And I feel very strongly and for no particular reason that it needs to stay that way forever. I mean, there's something to be said for that. I, I, I Jason, you're right. They've been, they've been messing around with this stuff for a while, but... Um, I don't know. I look at this and I think when I see subscribe buttons on things, I start to think like, okay, they're trying to get something that's kind of, I mean, it's a customizing thing. It reminds me of when they, when, you know, RSS was supposed to be huge and it turns out it didn't cross over to something people understood. So I have questions about like, 
will people want to have this kind of uh, subscribe to this feed, subscribe to this part of this source? Will they want that kind of behavior? And is this... You know, is this about making a Facebook page? That's the I, I think to Jessica's point. Point. My worry is that what what Google's tr- dangerously treading on here is the idea that that your Google page is going to become a Facebook page because Facebook has the the power of putting lots of uh, information sources in front you front of you, and Google is sort of backed away from that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I, I don't find it anything like Facebook in the sense that it's not from some social circle or anything. It's it's. Uh, really based on where uh, it's currently and in the new iteration, just based on where you go and and what you do. So if you never visit, uh, you know, the blaze, you're not going to get the blaze in your feed. If you're there all the time, you're going to get that as a source. Uh, and it's not really about subscribing to a feed so much as a really broad topic areas. Like I'm interested in politics. So you get U (laughs) S politics news, um, or I don't want to see anything about, you know, football. And then you just never get football stories. Um, so it's not, it's uh, who knows where they're going to take it in the future, but as long as they still give people the option, if it's on the homepage, to not have this, to say, no, 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 just give me the box and nothing else. <laughs> just, you know, then that's fine. And and I don't think they would get away with not doing that, with basically saying, no, you get the feed. You go to Google <laughs> and you get the feed. Uh, I don't think that they would really necessarily, that would not last long. That outcry <laughs> would be huge. Yes. Especially from this corner of the internet. I mean, the obvious thing to worry about, though, is to what extent this will allow people to um, contract their news bubbles even smaller. I mean, I guess so right now, this isn't a thing at all for a lot of people. Like, I've never used the Google app on my phone. I always just Google in Safari. Um, But... I mean, one of the things, the horrible, one of the many horrible things about Facebook is the extent to which you can make sure that you only see things that reinforce your own worldview. So if you're like an anti-vaxxer, then, you know, you don't want to see anything from the other side. And I sort of, it sort of sounds like Google is going to try to balance that out a little bit. Um, there is a paragraph, uh, where was it? To provide information from diverse perspectives, news stories may have multiple viewpoints from a variety of sources. Okay, that sounds good in theory. Um, I just, I, it would be super if Google could fix that problem. Um, I don't have a whole lot of faith that they'll be able to, and I wouldn't be surprised if this made it worse. Do you use Apple's news app? Never. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, that, that, uh, it's not coming from the same uh, sort of a machine learning approach of trying to find, uh, trying to automatically determine the kind of things you like based on your history and so on. But it is really still doing the same thing of letting you pick and choose where do I want to get my news from? Cause I don't want to, I don't want things that don't fit in my bubble. You know, I mean, you can already sort of still do that. And I don't know of many news aggregators that would not fall afoul of that, that would just just in the name of customization, let you not, uh, you know, force you to see stuff that you wouldn't otherwise want to see. I don't think people would like it. So, yeah, it's a, that's a double edged sword. I don't I don't know that there's an easy solution for that. 
And I am a total hypocrite in that I don't want to hear anything that Alex Jones ever has to say ever. Um, well, I mean, but, yeah, well, me you, too. Do to, but, you do have to draw the line somewhere, right? I mean, there's not going to be uh, like a Google News story that says, uh, you know, new uh, launch to the International Space Station and then other news source flat earthers say, nope. <laughs> right. It's like, right. You do that, draw exactly. that line and be like, no, that's that's not reasonable. Oh, is it another thing? So Google so proud of their AI technology, their machine learning. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about more about about this uh, for our <laughs> second story. But I think it's really interesting that this is Google trumpeting personal interaction to help give them better signal. And oh, yeah, you know, is it is it a failing of their algorithms that they need this or is this what their algorithms need to be good? Uh, you know, I, I could argue it either way. But it's really interesting. This is like, yay, instead of just intuiting what you want, we're letting you tell us like it's a feature. You can tell us what you like. Uh, what a what a concept that I could tell Google what I like directly. Yeah, I, I think all these AI assistants and machine learning things, they, they all have some sort of uh, oops, you got it wrong. Uh, kind of feature or or something mm. or some customization where where you can refine the algorithm by giving them more data <laughs> and Google is nothing if after more data all the time yeah so it's more signal right even though it, yeah. it shows uh, maybe i don't know maybe it's the role of humans in the machine learning world is we're going to provide way better signal than anything a direct signal is always going to be better than an intuited signal maybe that's the best way to put it like it, sure if you want to tell us what you like then we don't even have to guess and maybe yeah, i think the best is the best is probably both right you know we're gonna combine you telling us with us using what we know the pandora model i guess mm-hmm yeah, it's just really interesting to see in Google, because of Google's unique place where they do have that that search page and they have the search engine they know. And, and in Android, it's much more prominent than in on iOS where you have to launch the Google app, which is kind of too bad because I like a lot of the things that are in the Google app and I never remember to use it. I just on iOS, I just. I know. And they they split the assistant into another app. Now I want two Google apps on my <laughs> iPhone. I, I'm not going to remember to launch those things. Yeah, they should exactly. be in one thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. But it's it's interesting and it's a different approach to I know Facebook is based on social circles, but in the end, so many people use uh, use Facebook for information sources and not just checking up on people. Right. And so I feel like this is kind of Google's counter to Facebook, which is, you know, Google's using other kind of signals other than who, you know. Which might be better, right? Because I, I mean, all of us undoundedly have a relative that we're like, oh boy, I can't, <laughs> I can't see those links anymore. Well, I can I tell you this: this if you use Google News as a as a sort of news aggregator site, which does let you customize it, I've never seen in the Google feed anything that I would say this wouldn't be on Google News. It's sort of like a different view of uh, a different format to to push your Google News page to you in a way. Um, so it's not, except it covers thing also topics that you wouldn't find in Google News. The the thing that's interesting about the Facebook comparison is uh, not to use two very popular words, but uh, art, artificial news stories. I won't say the f word. Hmm. Uh, those stories <laughs> that that are fictional but are presented as news, of course, ran rampant on Facebook last year, mm-hmm. and they're they're putting things in place to try to to mop that up and. Uh, and they're doing like humans and machine learning kind of to do it sort of this this joint effort. And I think anytime a company is saying, hey, we're going to put a new news app out there or a new feed or a new sort of aggregation of all these sources, that's got to be part of the story now that, hey, how do we verify these things are actual stories and not, again, the uh, 
that word. So it's, yeah. uh, I find that an interesting component to this. You know, in the past, I would have gotten really worked up about the bubble, only hearing what I want to hear. But now that's sort of even way more serious. How do I know that what's coming into this is actually from uh, reputable sources? And I think Google's doing a pretty good job of that. And so hopefully this product will alleviate some of that for for these users. Yeah, I've never seen anything in either the feed or Google News that I find to be like just completely made up false ridiculousness. Right. I found plenty of stories I disagree with or I said, <laughs> oh, they have a slant here that I don't think is fair. But, sure. But I've never seen anything that's, you know, to to use uh, Jessica's point, I've never seen InfoWars pop up ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. If I could confine my bubble to things that are true, like I think that would be right. okay. I'm okay with that bubble. Well, that, yeah, that's go. the challenge that um, Google and Facebook have about back to machine learning again. We're just, it's all about that. Uh, talking about like Google or Facebook hired journalists to do curation famously and didn't pay them and had them be contractors and didn't <laughs> invite them to the holiday party and then laid them off. Oh it's yeah. Great, great story. Um, one of my favorites. So, so, uh, but but this is the question is like, can you use on the not about personalization, but for sort of like detection of reality, can you use machine learning to weed out the stories that are not uh, are, are not real are not good? Um, or do you have to integrate in that human intelligence to send those signals like we were saying before about the follow button? Having a direct signal is often clearer. And I don't actually know how Google is handling this, but I would think that some collection of machine learning and human beings you know, curating, seeing stories and saying, maybe not saying, yes, show this to all of Google, but being one of a panel of people saying this is a real story. I'm not quite sure how you do that. But that, for me, that's kind of like the, the, the great solution to the problem of not real news is having a system, some kind of system, and Google has the power to do it, that just basically kicks out the, the bogus stuff. Not the slanted stuff necessarily, because being out of, out of your bubble a little bit is a good thing, but the stuff that just lies and just saying, no, yeah. we're we're not going to cover that. It's not. It's it's you not know, the, in here. The flip side of that coin is that uh, as machine learning gets better and as these AI get better trained and smarter and learn how to spot fake stuff and so on, it could be. It could eventually be the best counter to the problems with human curation, to the all the biases that we have mm-hmm. ourselves. And and the machine could say, well, you don't really have a good reason for saying that this isn't valid. This is you know this is as far as I can tell, something good, you know, or at least something, you know, as valid as the stuff you're picking and override a person who is showing human biases. So, I mean, that's, it could eventually get there. We're not, I don't think they're close. You should be able to detect a, a, a curator's biases, right? Uh, if the algorithm is powerful enough, you could actually say, I know what the biases is, biases are of all of my different curators and how to mm-hmm. counter. I mean, then again, the uh, purveyors of false information, again, I'm not going to say that word. Thank you, Stephen. Um, are, uh, they've got their own tools and they're gaming the system and they're probably building on their own machine learning algorithms to create oh, yeah. other things that are are not true. So that's now we've entered a William Gibson novel now where it's the AIs yeah. that are giving, well, you get, giving us good news. You guys news have seen and, the, uh, the, the new uh, technology, I guess they're presenting at SIGGRAPH or something where they can... You take a video feed and make it say whatever. Yeah. They can change the mouth, you know, and not Wonderful. with an artist doing it. They just take a recording and it makes the video feed's mouth move <laughs> naturally in a way that matches the audio. So now you can fake 
like real video sources. It's a, it's it's a little bit off, but it's you know Gen two is going to be perfect, and we're, now we're really in trouble. <sighs> well, I'm I'm glad we did this podcast together before the uh, world ended. So that was, mm. <laughs> it was nice to be here with you all before we all destroy ourselves in a ball of fire. Um, Okay, well, uh, I'm. Let's move on to other happier topics. Oh no, they're not happier topics. But before we move on and talk but more about machine learning, they are related. We've got that going for us. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment to give you a brief respite by telling you about a wonderful sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. If you op- own a small business, you are going to know what a chore administrative work can be. It is a grind. It's not why you got in business, but you have to do it. More than five million small business owners feel just the same way, but they feel better now because they discovered FreshBooks. It's the simple cloud accounting software that's transforming how small business owners handle their paperwork. It's great for invoicing. Create and send an invoice in less than 30 seconds. No formulas, no formatting, just a perfectly crafted invoice every time. Your clients can pay you online, which means you often get paid faster than you would by other means. I have a, a, a customer who invoices me with FreshBooks, and I pay it the moment I get it because it's just in my inbox, and I can click and like a couple of clicks and I paid him. It's great. I know he's happy about it. And I'm happy to not have that nagging suspicion that I owe him money at the back of my head. I just take care of it and it's done. So it works for him and it works for me. There's a handy deposit feature. You can invoice for a payment up front when you're starting a project. Uh, FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've emailed. So you'll know if they've seen that invoice. So so when I, when I pay it, part of my thought process there is, well, he knows I've seen it, so maybe I'll pay it now. Uh, this is just a fraction of what FreshBooks can do for you. You owe to yourself to break free from the boring administrative work and let FreshBooks help you and your small business. For a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash download FM and enter download in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you to FreshBooks for supporting download. Okay. Artificial intelligence and machine learning, again, these are obviously (laughs) huge buzzwords, but when you put garbage into a machine learning system, guess what? You get refined garbage back out. That was the lesson of the guy who oversees something called ConceptNet Number Batch. I hope Benedict Cumberbatch gets a royalty from that, which is a knowledge base for AI systems. He found that um, machine learning trained our own biases and prejudices into into the systems and it took a human being him to debias the data so it was usable again this is far from the first time we've seen this there have been lots of other examples machine learning is ever more a part of how we interact with technology this seems like a gigantic problem assuming we want our technology to be unbiased now jessica you suggested this topic uh, and said it made you so cranky and i want to hear <laughs> i want you to let the cranky out about uh machine learning where we train our biases into our machine Oh, absolutely. It's terrifying. Um, One of the worst books I've ever read uh, in the sense of made me dread the coming dystopia. Well, we're in it. Let's face it. Um, It was uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, um, because it turns out that there there's this idea that computers are impartial and algorithms can solve all of the problems of human bias, but that perspective totally ignores the fact that, well, how do the computers know anything? You give them training data, and it turns out that the training data, obviously, is full of things like racism and sexism. Like A, a common thing to do is to train an AI on text from the internet, which is the worst amalgamation of every horrible thing you can possibly imagine. So you end up with these robots who are like 
grossly racist. There was an article um, fairly recently about how an AI was rating Mexican restaurants poorly because the word Mexican was associated with things like illegal and other, you know, bad coded words. And that's Mexican food is excellent. <laughs> so I yes. found that. Per- but it, it I mean, of course, that's that's a very funny joke. Trust me, it is. Um, but then when when AI is used for things like uh, trying to predict recidivism among prisoners to determine their sentencing, you end up, well, shockingly, gosh, it seems like the machine thinks that that if you're a black person, you're much more likely to reoffend. And it ain't necessarily so. So the the guy, um, he's basically my hero for going through and debiasing his data. And of course, it's probably like, somebody would probably make the argument that, well, what about his biases? But I'm sure he made a good faith effort. And I applaud that. Yeah, one of the examples in this article that we'll link to in the show notes from Lifehacker is uh, the the before the debiasing. If you had the analogy of man is to woman as shopkeeper is to fill in the blank, <laughs> it said housewife. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, we all remember Microsoft's uh, what is it? Tay was the their oh, AI yeah, bot. No. The, the, how long it took? You know, racist just because chatbot. yeah, yeah, because it lived on Twitter. <laughs> it took all of like one day for it to become you know a racist Nazi, and that was. You know, it's a refl- it's it amplifies ourselves, you know, or at least our the randos on the internet. So, right. Um, I was trying to explain to somebody who's not a very technical person, like what machine learning is and how it's different mm-hmm. from programming a computer. The other day, and I said, "Well, it's like teaching a child. You don't have to, instead of programming a computer with all the specifics of like what a cat looks like, you program a computer with the ability to analyze shapes and the relationships between shapes, and then you feed it a bunch of pictures of cats and say these are cats, and it eventually builds." A, a relationship. It builds relationships to itself and says, oh, okay, you have four legs, the tail, the two eyes, ears on top of its head, that's a cat. And it will be wrong when you first feed it a dog picture and it thinks that's a cat because it's got it's furry and it's got four legs and a tail and two eyes. So then you have to say, no, that's a dog. <laughs> and you feed a bunch of pictures of dogs and then it will eventually refine its model to the point where it understands relationship differences between what what makes a dog different from a cat and then it will be right uh and that's very powerful because if you were trying to make it identify all these animals you could never program all the specifics of all these animals but you could just program a well here's how to determine shapes and colors and the relationships between them and then just feed it a ton of data you know so uh it's the same thing with all these machine learning algorithms and stuff. Whatever data you feed them, it's going to be fine, but it's going to eventually be wrong. And just as bringing up a child, you don't want to teach your child. You don't want your child to just accept everything it learns from its school kids and everything, what it sees on TV and stuff. So I, I think there's a future job for what is essentially going to be machine learning nannies. <laughs> people who people who go through the data, who watch what the machine learning, the algorithms learning and wait the data that it says and says, this is good. Don't listen to that. That's bad. You know, don't listen to your friend, Jimmy. He's a bad influence, you know, <laughs> and, you know, right now, all the researchers and scientists are doing this. But as we get more machine learning everywhere, when it becomes a product that uh, Amazon sells on AWS and, and everything this is going to be somebody, this is going to be a job title that we didn't used to have, like social media manager. It's just going to be, you know, the machine learning nanny is going to be something people have to have. 
And that's going to get to be a valuable thing. Like when I go buy a product that has machine learning built in, the way it was raised is going to be <laughs> a worthwhile thing. It's going to be something of value. The uh, yeah. You mentioned uh, the the people, the scientists who are training these things now. I think that opens up a whole other issue here, which is it's not always that the training is full of bad data sets because uh, p- there are awful people in the world. That can happen. The Tay example is a really good one. <laughs> Sometimes, mm-hmm. though, what the machine learning training discovers is unconscious biases and also th- things that are representative of uh, bad samples. And by that, I would mean a lot of times to Silicon Valley companies have a certain kind of engineer who's working on this and they get their coworkers to provide photos or text or whatever. And they train the system based on that. And if those workers are not from a broad sample of culture and society, what you end up with is machine learning that's trained really well on a very specific slice of culture and very badly about everything else. And then you open it up to the world. Uh, and that is a big it's a big problem because it's not been trained for the the real world. It's been trained for whatever, you know, whether it's your coworkers or whatever the bias is in a stock photo library, right? Or something like that. Or who self-selects to be on Flickr or post p- images on the internet. If you feed your AI just black cat pictures, it's going <laughs> to learn everything about how to determine what a cat is and assume they are all black. Well, but, I <laughs> and mean, then fa- when the f- you show it a Persian cat, it's going to go, oh, that's not a cat. Well, the famous example, I mean, we since we're mentioning great examples of disasters in machine learning, <laughs> yeah. is Google Photos identifying black people as gorillas because oh, the God. number set was, or the photo training set was mostly uh, white people and and not black people and apparently pictures of animals and things. And it was not mm-hmm. something, I mean, the people who built that are not horrible racists, but... But they didn't have a representative sample of data. And, and that is invisible to most people. And, uh, you know, that, that's scary, too, that you may not understand that what you're training totally misses uh, a section of society, a part of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And then you've, you've created this brilliant machine that is, com- is actually completely messed up and doesn't, doesn't have, doesn't con- isn't going to give out good output to many different scenarios. It's scary. And I don't know what the I don't know what the solution is other than to say, again, as I've complained about on this show before, that this is the danger of Silicon Valley being a little bit too much of a monoculture and why a lack of diversity in Silicon Valley um, is not just about uh, providing more opportunities for uh, people who are not don't necessarily look like your traditional tech worker to work in the industry. It, it, It ultimately impacts the products that the industry isn't as isn't as broad reaching and diverse as it should be, because this is a perfect example. I kind of wonder if there's a a growing cottage industry that will soon become, you know, a thriving middleware community of services to provide training data for AIs that they specialize in that. And that's what they do. And, And a big selling point will be, you know, we gather data from all these sources all over the place that you wouldn't have, that you don't have access to that are everywhere, um, to, to try to avoid some of those problems and get, get these things off to a higher quality start than they than they do sitting in the lab getting whatever the 
lab guys feed it. Yeah, I'm picturing a uh, uh, character, again, a character in a William Gibson novel who, you know, <laughs> his entire job is being a, uh, a hunter of of uh, obscure data sources from obscure uh, websites and services around the globe that that he then identifies. It's like a finder of lost databases. And I'm like, I don't know, I've got a really great social network from India that has a lot of data that you might want, Mr. Google, but I'm not going to tell you its name. You're going to pay me to get the... <laughs> Um, we could we could end up there. I don't know. Um, in the end, uh, Jessica, since you you did suggest this, um, in the end, the machine learning stuff is pretty great, and it seems like it's a way forward that that we don't otherwise get. The, the, uh, if we if we stick to traditional programming methods, I mean, it has so many benefits, but it's very clear that this is. Uh, that it's it's kind of i mean the computers are programming themselves it is a little bit scary right and (laughs) and we risk biasing and kind of wrecking our computers with our failings it's it's a kind of a scary time i think you think so Yeah, totally especially if we think of them as impartial machines but they're total reflections of ourselves and i mean a human scrubbing a data set is effective but not at scale and trying to figure out how to de-bias at scale is probably something that a lot of phds or phd candidates are working on right now i mean what do you do average biases and come out with some middle i don't know it's a really hard question so it's at once like really awesome the things that we're going to be able to do with um, machine learning but it's also at least moderately terrifying the impact that this could have on our lives I love the idea that, and, and I think this may, I think you may be right. I think there may be people working on this right now at these companies or, or at universities and PhD programs. The idea that step one is machine learning. Step two is, oh no, <laughs> right? Oh no, 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 we didn't mean that. And step three is machine learning or, you know, some other way of, of then constructing the, uh, the debiasing algorithm or whatever it is how do you collect data to determine what is is the good data and what is the what is the bad data um as long as you make sure that that does not have its own inherent biases and it's machine learning all the way down (laughs) i just hope they don't um i just hope they're learning their lesson from these relatively innocuous things like tay uh that they're not to get these things out into the public and not to let them be changed too dramatically on their own uh, without, you know, I hope they're learning these things with those products, and then before they work on something really important <laughs> that that really affects people's lives, you know. Right. Hopefully, this is this Tay Tay's meaningless, but hopefully they learn their lesson about. Well, gee, should we put it in public? Should we just feed it the whole internet and let it do whatever oh, it God. wants, or should we have somebody <laughs> watching it? You know. Yeah, Tay. To to be fair to Microsoft, right? It was an experiment. And we yeah. saw why <laughs> and yeah. we learned, we all learned and that's good. I mean, you could make the argument that I'm not sure how much uh, is behind the assembly of, of, of new stuff at Facebook, but like Facebook uh, last year with its news going up to the election, you know, there could be an argument made there that that was ex- an, an example of the bad side of this, but maybe not, maybe not. But you're, I totally agree. Um, this is important and, and everybody in this field needs to realize that uh, they got to get it. They got to get it right. 
and protect and save us from ourselves, essentially save us from our own biases. Yeah, the consequences are small right now. So let's let's get it right before we put people's real lives in jeopardy. Yes. Well, the machine learning suggested that we should launch a nuclear missile, (laughs) (laughs) but it turns out we trained it with war games. And uh, so it was very confusing. Yeah. Well, I see why you're cranky. I, 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 I do, uh, Jessica. This is a, it's a great topic, and it, it is the topic. I, I would say it's the topic of the, of the era right now, that we are in the machine learning era. Everybody is rushing forward with machine learning stuff because it is so effective. And I think it's really useful to, to take a moment and, and, and think about all the ways where it, it has the potential to let us down because it's not a, it's not a magic thing that you put, you put all the information of the internet in and you get out the truth. You, you, like I said before, you get refined garbage out if the, if it's garbage you put in, not saying the whole internet's garbage, just large enough. Um, all right. Well, let's take a break and I'll tell people about our, uh, our second sponsor, which is Flight Logger. It's a real time flight tracking app for worry free travel. With Flight Logger, you can track your flights in real time. You can keep updated on departures, arrival times, delays, and cancellations. It can even give you details on departure gates and baggage claim. And you can set up fully customizable push notifications to get that data to you, even when you're rushing through security. You can sync Flight Logger with your calendar so you can automatically add upcoming flights and easily manage your travel schedule. All of this means less waiting, less hassle, and less to worry over. Flight Logger is available on all your devices. You can add your flights on your iPhone. It will automatically be synced to your iPad and your Apple Watch. And good news for Android users, Flight Logger is currently working on their Android version as well. The team over at Flight Logger knows what you need when you're traveling, and that's why Flight Logger is easy to use, clutter-free with a clean, minimalist design. Everything's available offline, so you can still access all your data while you're in the air. It covers about 37,000 airports worldwide, takes up just 50 megs of space on your device, and it's completely ad-free. Take the guesswork out of travel. Go to flightlogger.co now, that's .co, to download FlightLogger and upgrade your travel experience today. Thank you, FlightLogger, for supporting Download. Um, this is the time in the show where I tell you about a story you might have missed, something that might have flown under your radar. And this came in actually this morning from listener Matt. Thank you. He posted a tweet with the hashtag download stories, which is a great way to suggest stories for the show. And it's a fun story about how CityMapper, the transportation information app, has turned into a transit service itself which just tickles me um, from app to service city mapper analyzed its own user data and found a hole in the needs of its users in London. So it applied for all the right permits and has set up a weekend nighttime bus service in a very specific part of London, which it felt was not being served by other transit options. I love it when things go from digital to analog and manifest themselves in the real world. So if you're out late at night in Islington and need to get a bus um look for the city mapper bus because it's a real thing and it's going to be coming by and they probably know exactly where you are if you use their app because they they learned that's why the bus exists it's pretty cool um and i I will remind everybody again yes if you'd like to tweet at us hashtag download stories for story suggestions and uh you can also uh tweet at us at underscore download fm if you have things to say we would love to hear from you Here's our last topic. Uh, The March of Nostalgia. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it'll be a, an old march. It'll sound like maybe disco, let's say. Uh, we'll be playing in the background. I, it, it, news from 1977. Yes, Atari is in the news. Or I should say the current corporation that owns the intellectual property that was once part of the video game giant uh, Atari. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Atari, because it's been through so many owners now. Anyway, Atari current version announced a brand new atari product coming out later this year it's a box styled very much like the classic atari 2600 right down to the wood paneling it sure looks like an atari emulator in the same vein as nintendo's uh, nes and snes classic products i'll tell you i'm going to make an admission here i am old enough to be part of the atari generation not the nintendo one so uh, suddenly i know what all those nintendo fans have been feeling about these other products <laughs> because i've been seized with this my heart has been gripped with this cold icy burn of nostalgia for the atari 2600 um uh, so jason and jessica is it is it good that some of the hottest and most buzzworthy tech products around right now are uh old games in emulators and entirely nostalgia based or you know is it cool jason what do you think uh i think overall it's cool i don't necessarily have high hopes for the atari box which as far <laughs> as i can tell is not really a product yet like it's it's a render some, of a yeah, it's it's a render <laughs> yeah. they part of the story is that in an investor letter in france or something they said they're going to crowdfund it and right. that mm. that just immediately yeah. sucks red all alert. the wind out of my yeah that's a big red flag like and and they don't seem to know what it is yet like it's going to play more modern games but it's also going to play these classic games i just they've never shown the controller like is it going to have that awkward terrible joystick that we all love to remember you know, i don't i don't know um but in general like the nest classic was a good um good idea for a product i mean there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of fight going on in this sort of preserving our history of games. Uh, and is emulation legal? Is it legal to own the ROMs? All this stuff. This is a good way to get that legal history out there and let people uh, remember this stuff. It's it's at least as good as buying some Criterion box set of you know really old movies and seeing what they could do back then and where we got to where we are now by by playing these things. And some of them hold up a lot of them don't hold up as good as your memory of them especially the atari <laughs> yeah. stuff if you've played any atari stuff mm. you're like wow this is this is mm, this is not what i remembered mm. um but uh, you know a lot of those old games really do they're still quite fun and uh it's so i'm glad they're available i'm glad they're so so far you know nintendo's efforts here have not been price gouging they've been a good deal so as long as they keep that up as long as they keep sort of the the quality of how they do this up you know i think it's good in sort of that museum preserving culture sense jessica do you feel a desire to uh bathe in in uh, in tech nostalgia I really, really do. I, I was, I'm, I was not one of the lucky few who was able to get their hands on an NES Classic Mini. Um, I don't know if I'm going to try to buy the Super Nintendo, the Super NES Mini, um, mostly because by that time my brother had effectively totally cut me off mm. from the Nintendo. So I don't personally have a lot of nostalgia for the Super Nintendo, um, other than Mario Paint. So. Hopefully there's like a Mario Paint add-on at some point, because <laughs> that was awesome. But um, 
Yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting point that it's it's similar to buying a Criterion Collection box set of movies. I've never actually thought about it that way. But why shouldn't people think about it that way? Why shouldn't this art form be given the same amount of respect as film? And and that is kind of a problem that people, to some extent, a lot of people really do still look down upon video games. And there's, there's no call for that. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh the idea here of taking this stuff out, having the, let me put it this way, the uh, emulation community has been doing this forever, right? But but as Jason said, it's not probably legal or maybe legal, but maybe not. Like, can I play Atari 2600 Superman if I have an Atari 2600 Superman cartridge in my desk drawer? Maybe. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of gray area. Right? But but the officialness of this, I, I love the fact that, that these companies feel like, uh, presumably, that they can make money on this old tech because, yeah, this stuff should not be lost. And these kind of, I mean, I'm... I don't know how I feel about these physical objects like the like the what Nintendo's been doing and what Atari's you know parent company Shell Corporation is threatening to do, <laughs> but um, because because like I've got a I've got a Wii U I've got a uh, a Nintendo Switch like I would just like to do virtual you know virtual console uh, download these games and just play them inside my existing game hardware rather than <laughs> trying to find a piece of plastic online that's got an embedded em- emulator in it right but yeah. I do want the games to be too. preserved yeah. right I want mo- most importantly I want the old games even the even Pitfall for the Atari 2600 which was a Activision <laughs> game by the way and not an Atari game um, I want those preserved because it it is important it is like an old film I, I was um I was just reading a, a book that uh, that was made into a movie in like 19 19- 10 and uh, that movie is and i was reading about it i'm like oh that's really interesting i wonder what that movie is like it's lost it's gone it it, Mm. it, it, the film dissolved or burned up and it'll never and it's like that's really scary when you when you lose a piece of of artwork forever and yeah old video games are artwork so i want them to stay i do wonder about playability it sounds like the nintendo stuff is still pretty playable i i agree jason Mm -hmm. what i've seen of uh, on my atari 2600 emulator Boy, I was hard up for entertainment when I was ten, is what I'm saying. But um, but the Nintendo stuff, like that classic Mario stuff, it's still pretty darn playable. Even Donkey Kong is still pretty dramatically playable. Old Pac Man is really playable. So you know, if it if it's fun, does it matter if it's old? <laughs> to your point about uh, where you get it, you know, Sega's doing this too. They have their new. Um their new program is called Sega Forever, and instead <laughs> of um, instead of putting out a piece of hardware that's just got a bunch of games on it, they are trickling out a, to- a whole bunch of games for smartphones. But they're the whole Genesis era of games, they're, you know, one after another. I think there's four or five of them now. And you can get them all free with ads or pay to a few bucks to get the ads off. Pick and choose the ones you want. And they're going to be trickling them out over time. So it's a different approach. But they're doing the same thing. They're, you know, enveloping them all in a brand and pushing them all together and trying to keep them out. But they're they're recognizing, well, people just want this on the things they have. So they're just out there for Android and iOS. So that's aren't another they, way to do it, to look at it. Aren't those roundly panned, though? Um, a lot of these controller-centric games don't really work with a touch interface. And a lot of people, and full disclosure, I used to sort of specialize in mobile games um, on my old podcast, Unconsolable. Uh, a lot of games that are ports of games that require controllers just are just awful yeah. when it yeah. on, a, on a touch screen 100 so. percent true yes yeah. uh, oh, they do support 
the Sega Forever stuff does support all the external controllers that are official. So if you have, you know, a gamepad for your iOS device that, uh, or, you know, a supported Bluetooth thing on your Android, they support those. But yeah, they do have virtual controls and it's not a great experience. So that's the other end of that sword. You can get it on the devices that there's hundreds of millions of out there already. But it's uh, terrible. And pick and choose which ones you want. But, you know, unless you also go buy a controller, you know, you're not going to have a great experience. Right. When I want to play Joust, I want to play it on a uh, basically on a computer because I want the keyboard to be able to hit the buttons really fast. And Joust is one of my favorite arcade games. Uh, you know, ostriches, eggs, what's not to like. And um, <laughs> and on touch, it's it's completely I was so excited to get it get a joust version for my iphone and i was like no it's terrible it's unplayable it's it's too yeah. bad but you gotta have and it's really a game you it's it's a game that gets so much better when two people play it and what are you gonna mm. do huddle around your ipad <laughs> with two people it just doesn't yeah yeah oh no you use an apple tv for that obviously but i i, I do like and and actually it's funny because my kids so my kids grew up their their uh childhood console was the the uh nintendo wii and um so they love all the nintendo characters and that it's a big part of our of our house is Nintendo stuff now because they 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 love those games so much. Um, but it's funny because some so many of those play mechanics of even modern Nintendo games are not that far off from the older Nintendo games, and so that that is part of my argument in in for this stuff is like old games are fun, like they're not just nostalgia trips; they're really good games. In fact, they were. Uh, I know the graphics you know, because the hardware was so primitive. The graphics are not great. The sound is not great. Although you know a whole music genre of of chiptune is built based on the limitations <laughs> of old video games right it's actually kind of amazing in its own way but mm-hmm. they're, they they were very carefully constructed to be um for arcades to be quarter eaters and for home <laughs> to be like uh, let kids obsess over these video games and it shows like uh, not every old video game is good because not every video game is good but there are old video games that are so delightful to play that um if people haven't tried uh, th- this is great, right? Because only the hardest core would seek out an emulator uh, on the internet and some ROMs. But picking up something like this or a virtual console inside your existing console, I think it's great that they get the chance to play them. And you should if you haven't, because um, you know it's it's just a, a kick to play um, Super Mario. Like well, original. to show how it, to show how influential that stuff uh, was and is. That's how they built the new Zelda game, the new Breath of the Wild for the Switch. Is when they were first making that game, they started off by building that game in the eight bit old Nintendo style, eight bit two D. That's how they prototyped it. Is they built an eight bit two D Nintendo, you know. Zelda Breath of the Wild uh, to to try all their mechanics and say, does this feel like a Zelda? Because that's what people think of as Zeldas, these, those old Nintendo games. And then once they sort of understood what worked, then they built it into the big pretty 3D thing that they shipped on the Switch. The I, I also want to put in a plug for... Um the idea of retro game development. So this is not quite the same, but the the uh, uh, SNES uh, classic comes with a game that was never released, which is cool. Yeah. Um, but I will also point out that I read a couple stories last year about somebody who had developed a new Atari 2600 game, which I... This is like the next frontier, people. <laughs> I love the idea of of having so so this and, and I think this is a lack of imagination on Nintendo's part. Like I would love to see to your point, Jason, about that prototyping. Like if you're going to come out with a Super NES Classic, commission a new game. 
Like, commission a new game. There are people out there who are able to program games for all of these platforms, these these retro platforms. They, they are doing it. There is uh, more than one person who can write new Atari 2600 games, which is mind-boggling, but it's a real thing. And it would be such a kick to see, uh, to open up that Atari box, let's say, or that Nintendo box and have a copyright, you know, here's a, here's a game, copyright 2017, amid all of the stuff from 1979 or 1985. That would be pretty great. I would love for them to do a whole ecosystem. I would love for them to let you, you know, either have a memory card or something like that. You know, you want to keep the price down to these things. You don't want them online. You don't want to build in Wi-Fi and all. But do a thing like that. Go to Unity and say, build me an engine where people can build Super NES games that we can ship (laughs) on our Super NES emulator. And you would be shocked at how many Super NES games sort of flood the Internet for people to download and put on a memory card and throw in their super nintendo classic emulator so yeah it doesn't all have to be 4k 60 frames per second <laughs> those are great those are great but it doesn't have yeah and, and um and jason i know you uh you like playing games and and jessica you had a whole podcast about mobile gaming right it's fair to say a game is good based on it being a good game and it has nothing necessarily to do with the technology involved. There are really crappy 4K 60 frame per second beautiful games that are crappy and there are really good games that have terrible graphics. It's like, you know, good games are good games. Absolutely. Game chauvinism is a real thing, but I think (laughs) it must be fought. Uh, Indeed. Anyway, it warms my heart that there are retro (laughs) games. All right. uh, I think we've uh, gotten near the end of this edition. Summary. It's summary. It's very, you know, it's just warm breezes of, uh, of, uh, of download. This is a, a lot of fun talking about machine learning and then old video games. I like to tell people about what's going on in the week ahead. Um, I mentioned last week that Comic-Con in San Diego would be happening this week. It is, it has just started as we record this. It will be rolling over the weekend. Get your news feeds and news alerts ready for every pop culture announcement of marketing and that. I was in San Diego over the weekend. I got to see them erect all of the like uh, scaffolding for all of the temporary venues and they were putting uh, wraps on all the trolley cars and and uh, and on the hotel, the sides of the big hotel high rises with uh, ads for different movies and TV shows. Um, it, San Diego is still one of my very favorite places on earth, and it's made even more pleasant by the knowledge that um, I wasn't going to be there this weekend when it's packed to the gills with convention goers. It's much nicer when there's nobody around. Anyway, but lots of Comic-Con news coming out. Uh, mostly not about comics, by the way. It'll be about movies, TV shows, video games, things like that that are, that are pop culture, but not, not so much with the comics anymore at Comic-Con. Anyway, this brings us to the end of this edition of Download. I would like to thank my guests. Uh, So, Jessica Dennis, where can people find the stuff that you do? I am at Jessica Dennis on Twitter, um, and I recently started a games review uh, (laughs) blog at games.jessicadennis.me. Cool. And you have a podcast too? Is that right? You have a new podcast? You I, did a- oh, I do. Um, I Well, actually, it's not new, but I always forget to mention it uh. because I'm a jerk. But um, if you go to ruffledfeathers.xyz, XYZ domains are very cheap, mm. um, you will get to oh. my uh, other podcast. Awesome. And the old uh, Unconsolable podcast is still around at, at Electric Shadow Network, right? Yep. Or unconsolable.com. And that's, as we used to say, unconsolable. Yes. Very nice. <laughs> uh, Jason Cross, where can people find the stuff that you do? 
Um, I'm all over the place now uh, that I'm doing freelance stuff. So you can find me at JasonCross00 on Twitter. Uh, and I'm doing a bunch of stuff for IGN and Tom's Guide and uh, starting up some stuff from iMore. So I'm going to be all over the interwebs. I always retweet or link something when it goes up on my Twitter feed. So that's the best place to start. Very nice. It's great to talk to you. Thanks to my producer, Stephen Hackett, as well. Stephen, thank you very much. You bet. See you next week, Jason. Yeah. And I am your host, Jason Snell. Until next week, when we will return, we will be watching those headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.